welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Welcome back to Clean Tech Talk. I'm your host, Michael Bernard, and today I'll be talking to the two co-founders of Buzz Solutions, Caitlin Albertoli and Vic Chaudhry. They analyzed terabytes of high-resolution images of power lines captured by drones and helicopters for their clients, rapidly identifying failed or failing components. Welcome, Caitlin and Vic. Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having us. It's uh, my pleasure. So let's start with your backgrounds. You know, why don't you guys talk about the path that led you into energy, where you came from, you know, the, the stuff that made you the, the right co-founders for Buzz Solutions. Caitlin, why don't you start? Absolutely. So I am Caitlin Albertoli, one of the two co-founders and CEO here at Buzz. My background, I uh, went to Stanford University where I studied international relations and psychology, but mostly focused my coursework on economics, finance, and really in the realm of business. And I, prior to Buzz, have experience working in finance. And then I also ran a nonprofit around sustainable food where I employed 60 people and oversaw the needs of about 300 people. And uh, Vic and I met in a Launchpad course at Stanford University that was focused in the realm of sustainability back in the spring of 2017. Excellent. How about you, Vic? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm Vic Chaudhary, one of the two co-founders and COO and CTO at Buzz. My background has been in the energy sector, so energy space, mostly energy engineering. Uh, That's what I pursued my master's in specifically focused on application of uh, data science, machine learning, AI technologies to areas such as smart grid technologies, demand response, DERs, energy efficiency. Prior to Buzz, I was leading ML and AI teams at Cisco Systems for a few years and then got back to my energy roots, did my master's at Stanford. That's where I met Caitlin and we ended up uh, launching Buzz from there. Excellent. But, you know, that's a the, the dry version. Let's get a little, a little more colorful. Caitlin, you've got, you know, gorgeous sunset and palm trees in your Zoom background. And I understand you come from a part of the world where there's a real energy controversy or there had been for a long time. What, what do you ta- tell us about that? Absolutely. So I am from San Clemente, California, which is a beach town in Southern California, about halfway between San Diego and Los Angeles. And in San Clemente, there was a very well-known nuclear power plant, uh, the San Onofre nuclear power plant. And a big part of my childhood growing up was watching as they were attempting to renovate and upgrade a lot of the portions of the nuclear power plant to make them more efficient. But unfortunately, they ended up shutting down the plant during my upbringing. And it, it definitely was, was a big swirl of, of controversy and a lot of buzz that was that was generated around that. And so as I was growing up, I definitely was becoming very interested and fascinated in what was happening in the energy space, especially in the renewable space. And I wanted to learn more. Um, And that was one of my initial sparks for wanting to get involved in courses at Stanford that were surrounding both energy and also sustainability. Excellent. And and Vic, you've got a very different background and an early experience with drones, which is applicable and resonant to what you're doing now. So why don't you tell us where you come from in that regard? Yes, most certainly. So I am from New Delhi, India. I grew up in, in the city of New Delhi in India, saw a lot of problems related to power and electricity in general. We had power outages almost every day when I was growing up. So I wanted to enter a field where I could 
apply technology, uh, whether it's in sensors or embedded or even software technologies to, to, a, to a field that has social impact or impact on society in general, which is energy in this case. So I did my undergrad in civil and environmental engineering, mostly focused on the environmental engineering aspect. And in the final year of my undergrad, built a drone, a quadcopter from scratch, uh, integrated or put on some pollution monitoring sensors on top of it, and then flew that vehicle around the city of New Delhi at hotspot areas to just monitor the air pollution. And surprisingly, uh, we, the, the readings that we uh, you know, captured were, it was comparable to smoking 60 cigarettes a day at the same time. Uh, the air pollution was so bad. We we're talking about above 500 AQI. So that was a, a driving factor for me because the, 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 the consequences of you know, pollution or climate change effects in developing nations is because there's lack of electrification. And that's where I wanted to go into the field of clean energy, dedicate you know, my time and resources and skills, mostly technical skills to that field. And that's where you know, I decided to come to Stanford, apply for, for that program specific to the clean energy engineering and then another project that I got involved, which was again related to flying, again with drones, have been really fascinated by drones. Uh, don't get to fly them day to day currently, but uh, one of the projects that was at Stanford was was my master's master's thesis was using drones to inspect wind turbine locations and and optimize their locations for uh, better yield and output. So we were building a bunch of models. We were flying drones. That was kind of the idea that I discussed initially with Caitlin as well, uh, how we can commercialize. We eventually got into the power sector, but that was another you know, example where I was flying vehicles. Yeah, it's um, a couple of interesting points here to draw out. Um, first, you know, most of Clean Technica's audience is from you know, more than the developed world, that's 50% US, 50% elsewhere. But one of the things that we have is a real problem with short memories in North America and <laughs> Europe. New York and London used to have smogs that killed people in the 50s and 60s. Their air quality was as bad or worse than New Delhi's or Beijing's was, you know, today. And it used to be lethal. And we cleaned it up because we went through a period of industrialization. And then we realized, oh, there's environmental consequences. And we started fixing things. And it's just a process. And so, you know, I know China is going through the process of cleaning up its air. You know, India is still a bit behind it, as far as I know. I haven't spent a lot of time in that. But yeah, it's the air quality is just, you know, so important for quality of life and long-term health. I think the um, World Health Association, World Health Organization, pegged it at um, an average of 5.5 years of reduced lifespan in northern China, which turns out to be billions of years of reduced lifespan because there are 500 million people up there. So very interesting, very different space. But on the aviation side, one of my previous guests was Grant Canary. I don't know if you guys have stumbled across Grant. He's a, you know, up in Washington State now with um, Drone Seed. And he runs, you'll, you'll find this interesting. He, there's two reasons for this. You're, he runs uh, swarms of 120 to 140 pound uh, hexacopters, uh, five at a time with two operators out of line of sight. Um, so he's got, you know, managed to get FAA approval for out of line of sight, heavy drones. And he's basically running them semi-autonomously doing precision planting of seedlings and burnt out uh, areas of forest to more rapidly regenerate stuff. You know, when I was talking with him, that was all done manually right now. 
And, you know, he's going to need an ML partner who knows how to work with drone imagery um, because they do a a first pass over a space. Then they run the drones back a week later after they've mapped out the routes and stuff. So it might be somebody interesting for you to talk to at some point. But let's get back to Buzz, you know, because as I think you guys said, Buzz, what you're doing now isn't what you started doing. So, you know, talk about the initial idea for Buzz Solutions and then, you know, the pivots, the process, the, the, the way you went through that, that thinking process. Yeah, I, I can I can start out there. So I guess a good place to start would be a little bit of a background on the course that we joined. So the course is now known as Venture Creation for the Real Economy, um, but it used to be called Entrepreneurship in Civil and Environmental Engineering. And that was what it was called when we took the course in in 2017. And really the whole premise of the course is you spend your first three weeks uh, building your entire uh, go-to-market strategy, your second three weeks building your five-year financial model, and the last third of the course is spent building your pitch deck, which um, you will pitch to industry experts and investors. And every every three weeks, you have a, a presentation that is uh, to industry experts, to CMOs, to CFOs, to venture capitalists who give you feedback and guidance on uh, your idea and your startup. And at the end of the course, you can you can launch your your project that you've been working on into a full-fledged company, which is which is what we did with Buzz. And as Vic was mentioning, we were originally exploring the wind turbine inspection market. We were looking at some of the master's research that he was he was conducting, and we were looking at what was happening with wind inspections. And we were uh, starting to interview companies that were that were in that space. And pretty early on, we were. Uh, having conversations with these folks. And they said, have you seen what's happening in the power sector and what's happening with more frequent drone inspections in the power space? And we said, you know, no, we're not as familiar with that, but we'll start conducting some interviews there to at least learn more and, uh, you know, figure out what's happening in that space. And so we leveraged the Stanford Alumni Network to interview 35 major power utilities, all of the uh, largest investor-owned utilities pretty much in the U.S. And we were able to speak with our inspection teams, and it was shocking to hear that the narrative was pretty much the same every time, was they were starting to do much more frequent inspections with drones. They were capturing 5 to 10x the number of images annually of what they were historically capturing, and uh, they were starting to do a lot more with high zoom, high resolution cameras on helicopters, and we're starting to deploy drone technology for inspections of both their transmission, which are the really high voltage lines and their distribution lines, which are more of the low voltage city lines. And so they were capturing hundreds of thousands of images at that time, but many utilities had plans to expand to capturing millions of images annually. But the process of analyzing that data was still entirely manual. They actually had engineers, linemen, field technicians, just stitching together the data and flagging any visible faults that they could see in each image, which of course is not a, a scalable process. It's also prone to error with, um, with humans at scale. And so it was causing a huge time lag and an incredible expense for making sense of a lot of this data as they were going to draft maintenance reports. And so I guess you could say that was where uh, Vic and I realized we had our moment that, well, there has to be a better way and using machine learning, computer vision could be a real solution to this. Yeah. So what we realized, as Caitlin was saying, was uh, the technology that we were working at Stanford was, uh, you know, replicable for the power sector. We were getting pointers from utilities as well, but this was even before the 2018 big wildfire 
uh, season that happened, we were flagging, we were trying to help utilities to flag hotspot areas where electrical components can get damaged and lead to catastrophic you know, consequences such as wildfires. So we were already ahead in terms of trying to help utilities and that gained us a lot of you know, momentum and traction over there. Excellent. Yeah. And just comparing and contrasting on wind energy, I've got a you know, fairly robust background in, in wind energy. I was a senior fellow of wind for a Washington-based think tank for a year and a bunch of my materials ended up in various textbooks and stuff. I'm just comparing and contrasting transmission and distribution lines and distribution uh, sections versus uh, wind turbines and wind farms. And it strikes me the distribution and transmission sector has got a lot more complexity, a lot more variance of components, a lot more observable things which can be identified than a wind farm. Is that a, a, a fair characterization or is it your experience actually different than that? Yes. And, you know, I, I would say the biggest thing that we realized is, you know, in addition to the fact that there's so many different faults and failure modes that these utilities are looking to identify on their transmission and distribution infrastructure, these are also very highly, highly critical and highly sensitive issues that are happening. So a, a severe fault can cause a, a downed power line. It can cause sparking. It could, uh, you know, spark a wildfire in extreme examples. So what we were seeing is that these mandated inspections that are happening in the power sector, they're becoming much more frequent and uh, the, the mandates are, are forcing this huge need for, for more inspections, but also more granular inspections. And as the grid's continuing to age, that's where we're seeing that there's even higher rates of failures that are happening along this equipment, which is why it's so important and so critical that these utilities are taking such close looks, I guess you would say, at a lot of their infrastructure. And uh, it sounds like there's two or three things driving this. Uh, when you say mandated, that implies that um, the regulatory bodies in your client's jurisdictions are requiring greater inspections. Is, is, that, a, is that a fair paraphrase of what you said? Usually, yes, it's correct. Yeah, usually it's the Public Utility Commission. Again, the utilities, uh, in, we have investor-owned utilities which are privatized. Uh, let's say, take an example of PG&E, but they still take recommendations and from the Public Utility Commission or California Energy Commission or the independent service operators in, in the region. Yeah, and from a regulatory perspective, mostly you're probably dealing with uh, liberalized energy markets where transmission is owned by one body and just, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some, some interesting stuff around rate stuff, which means that there's a mm -hmm. almost guaranteed revenue stream for you with this client base. It's a nice market in that regard. I mean, we ended up with a problem globally with gold-plated transmission infrastructure. We have that in Alberta. We're seeing it in Australia, where liberalization and the rate structure uh, guaranteed profits led to very expensive projects, leading to very expensive transmission, which leads to predictably a lot more local solar and distributed energy. Just a, uh, an interesting space, but you guys actually get a benefit of it from your solution. But there's another thing that you said there, which is two or three things I would like to pull apart. One is uh, 10x the number of photos, but the same, you know, you can't train new people to get, you can't train 10 times as many people. So before you guys showed up with a solution, what were they thinking? How were they planning to deal with this? Oh, yeah, it was a big challenge. And, and that was a challenge that they were grappling with at the, at the time that we were starting to explore these conversations and we're entering the market. What was happening was they were 
starting to collect so much more data and they were trying to hire additional linemen and field technicians and engineers to analyze all of this data. But of course, as you were saying, you really can't keep up with the curve of how fast they were starting to collect more imagery and more detailed inspection data. And so what was happening was the lag time was starting to increase. So from the time the image was captured until the time the image was analyzed, it was just an increasing lag time, which is poses incredibly high risk because the more time that that passes from the time that the image is collected to the time that it's analyzed, of course, you know, it's it's no longer truly accurate data. Uh, you don't know what's happened in that in that gap of time, how that piece of equipment may have may have degraded, what other sort of weather impacts could have uh, hindered the performance of that asset. And so what we were seeing is that there was a bigger gap of time from the time that the image was captured to when it was analyzed and that the the risk was going up tremendously. And that's where utilities became increasingly interested in looking at alternative solutions to help make sense to manage this data and then uh, analyze it to provide actionable insights. I mean, it's it's imperative at this point uh, to have technologies like IoT sensors and uh, in this case, analytics and AI, because a, a lot of utilities are still doing these manual inspections. Their linemen are still going on these lines, uh, you know, walking down the lines with their binoculars and notebooks and, uh, you know, looking at them or in extreme conditions. And we, we see that all the time is linemen have to crawl on these high voltage lines. And that's uh, another risk, safety risk over there. So we, we, we see that a lot. And, you know, as, as we progress with time, as more, more and more data is being captured, there needs to be some kind of automation for mundane tasks uh, that, that these inspectors and linemen have, have to do currently, which can be uh, you know, used for better purposes for for their roles. They're not supposed to, you know, shuffle through, you know, 200 linemen shuffle through, you know, thousands of images on a daily basis, which is a very mundane task. And that's where technologies like ours uh, can come in and help a lot. It strikes me, you guys, have, you know, the timing was perfect. There were two separate technical innovations which you were able to exploit um, relatively easily. Um, first was uh, quadcopter drone, um, high resolution digital imagery you know, became just a, a cheap and everywhere thing. So, you know, it started, it's, you know, it's been heavily impacted the rotorcraft market where, you know, in the military and civilian solutions, the first question people ask is, okay, I need to do something that I used to do with a helicopter. Can I do it with a drone? And so you've got that ability to create a lot more data because it's so cheap. And you've also got much lower uh, workman's comp risks for the inspectors, all sorts of value propositions there, which is why, you know, drone-based inspections are so disruptive to so many places. It's very cool. But the second part is around 2017, the, the primary image manipulation machine learning libraries and technologies really hit a, a state change. It really became a lot easier to create a machine learning image identification solution with open source tools and expensive GPUs. You know, probably, um, Vic, maybe you want to talk about those two aspects of the evolution because you built your own drone and you're a machine learning guy. Do you want to talk about that evolution? And, and you know, if my assertion that 2017 was a really useful cusp point to start your business holds, holds water? Yeah, definitely. Um, those two points are spot on. Uh, I'll start with the drone and UAV technology. You know, we've seen a lot of players enter in the last, you know, five to seven years in, uh, in, in the area of UAVs with a lot of drone companies, you know, coming into the market. 
being successful, some being failures, uh, but learning the learning through their mistakes over there. But in terms of te- uh, technology, the the drones have become, as you see with even DJI drones or other company drones, they have become smaller. They have become much more powerful in terms of both the battery life and the processing unit on them. But more than that is the sensors have become much more smaller. So now you can fit, let's say, a pressure sensor that used to be size of your fist is now a size of uh, you know, your fingertip. So you can fit all those sensors on top of a very really small drone with a higher you know, uh, flight range and then can fly with even autonomous capabilities if you get the uh, licensing for that. But you can fly that easily. It's way more cheaper. It's accessible to every person easily. So the drone technology has you know, come a long way and it's still going on with more you know, battery sensors, uh, with innovations in the battery sensing uh, capabilities for increasing its flight range. So we are seeing a lot of innovation over there. But even more than that, going to the to the machine learning aspect of it, I would definitely say 2016, 2017 is when, you know, or, or even 2015 was when Google, uh, you know, released their ImageNet and all these other open source libraries, ResNet, on the image processing side. That can be a backbone for a lot of image processing technologies. And I think that's where you see a lot of companies in the computer vision space starting to come up around 2015, 2016, 2017 timeline. And now it's growing. Computer vision space is going to be implemented in multiple industries, manufacturing, automotive. And we're seeing that in power sector with us, but also you know other antiquated industries as well. So there has been a lot of innovation and that has been due to a couple of factors over there. First one is making these algorithms very open source in the access of you know you know the general public, but the second is there has been a, uh, you know great uh, innovation and improvement in compute. As you were saying, the GPUs became really accessible, were really cheap. With cloud technologies now offering GPUs on the cloud, so you can just fire up a GPU in in a couple of seconds, and you don't even have to know. Uh, you know, the embedded system training for that, or don't, you don't even have to code a GPU. You click a few buttons on your cloud infrastructure and boom, you have a GPU fired up. You can train a model in a few lines of code. So that really drove the, the innovation in this space. And, and it is, again, going to improve a lot with more automation coming in inside AI, ML, and computer vision space. Uh, machine learning operations is becoming another really big field as well. So we'll see much more innovation, but those were, I would say, yeah, 2016, 2017 were, you know, the starting points of, you know, both UAVs and, and AI ML portion. Yeah. My observation, you know, having a background in industry and, you know, look, exploiting it for other things is that that really, it was a plateau that was reached in 2017. That was, it had multiple characteristics. A, it was open source stuff. So it was free to use except for the GPU cycles. Two, it was really easy to use compared to historical things. There'd been a whole bunch of innovation that had been done by a lot of people that led to something really an amazing toolkit that could be exploited without having a PhD in machine learning and having spent a decade in a tool set. So very interesting stuff. You know, it's interesting to see the intersection point of two different technical innovation spaces leading to problems for the clients because hey, we need you to take you know, a lot more pictures a lot more quickly and they can do it with drones. So now that they've got all this problem with images, which are solved by this other thing that's emerging. Very interesting intersectional point. But 
let's talk a bit about the business. How often, I mean, you must have heard this, had this discussion, you know, when they were just doing with helicopters, very expensive, $500 an hour, uh, operational costs kind of stuff. How often did they inspect their lines and how fast did they expect to get, you know, the images analyzed? So there's a few different components that uh, kind of go into that, I guess you would say. So with the inspections, for transmission lines, uh, they were, were seeing that utilities were being mandated to inspect a certain percentage of their lines every year. So it's either a fourth of their lines every year or a third of their lines every year. We're seeing that that cycle time is, is continuing to, to decrease. And those are just their, their mandated inspections. So it's becoming more and more frequent now that they have to inspect a larger portion of their grid. Those are just the mandated inspections though. That does not include all of the on-demand inspections that also take place during high-risk times. So times where uh, they're at risk of potential storms or when they're going to analyze uh, storm damage. Uh, also during high winds, high winds is another uh, key area or when there's a uh, risk of wildfires. During wildfire season, there's a lot more on-demand inspections that take place. And uh, utilities often identify what are known as hotspot areas. So those are the areas that are uh, prone to higher risk or where they've already deemed some sort of potential failure could, could occur on some of those, uh, those either miles or those lines or those few structures or towers. And so they typically inspect those areas more frequently. For the process of analyzing that data, it really depends whether it's a flyby inspection, which is just a, a high-level quick inspection or a scan of the lines, or if it's a granular inspection. So really in those more granular inspections where they are capturing uh, many more images per structure, per tower, uh, it takes a lot longer to analyze that data. So for example, uh, when you're doing a granular inspection for a transmission tower with a drone, we're seeing that many utilities are capturing between 40 to 60 images per tower. It can be as low as 30 or it can be as high as you know, 80 or 90, but we're seeing that many utilities are, are capturing between 40 to 60 images per transmission tower. But then for a distribution pole there, which is the which are the wood wooden poles, and those are more of the either the city lines or the lines that are outside the city, so a little bit lower voltage, uh, and they have fewer components on them. We're seeing that for those poles, they're capturing anywhere between four images a pole to 12 images a pole. And it really sits often between the eight images to 10 to 12 images range. And so uh, we're seeing that depending on how many poles they're planning to inspect today or how many towers they're planning to inspect today, that can cause a huge difference in the amount of time it takes to analyze that data. That being said, we see that with our uh, solution, we're saving at a minimum 50% of time savings. And we've seen that on several use cases, but we see that at scale that continues to increase for some utilities we're saving on a per pole basis or a per tower basis up to 70 or 80% of time compared to just the time it takes to manually analyze all of that imagery. And that's on the one side, you guys aren't into the drone automated path creation process yet, but it does strike me that, you know, machine learning on board I and mean, right now, you know, Vic undoubtedly knows this. Caitlin, you, you're in the business. You probably know this. Your iPhone has GPU in it that can do machine learning models and can do all sorts of interesting stuff just native to the machine. I've, I've certainly talked about you know potential use cases for that as a sensor platform because it's robust and it has a whole bunch of stuff in it. 
But the question there is, um, are people doing automated drone image taking by saying that is an interesting thing for the drone to take an image of and have it hunt over the thing without a, an operator flying it to a specific location, taking a picture, flying to a location, take a picture. Have you seen any penetration of machine learning control solutions into that yet? Yeah, so that's an area of you know innovation that is going to grow a lot. And that's the next you know era of inspections, if you look at it. With, with the FAA regulations uh, loosening and uh, a lot of utilities and a lot of other organizations and companies getting FAA clearances to do beyond line of, uh, visual line of sight, they are testing solutions like these. And even solution like ours is, is pretty well situated to help you know, these automated vehicles, in this case, the drones, to do recognition. So again, as, as we are, what we think about ourselves is we are an AI orchestration engine. It takes in data from multiple sources, it churns out results and you know, either does recognition, detection, or even prediction, that's where we are heading towards. Uh, so a, a processing unit, a brain for, in this case, we are on uh, you know, the utility software, but what we can do is as a use case is, is be that processing unit or brain for, for a drone as well which is in the field inspection. So there, there are testing, there is testing going on with various organization, research organizations, and even utilities are testing uh, such kind of drones. And that is going to be the next uh, you know, phase of inspections where you have models deployed on top of the drone to kind of recognize, first recognize the assets themselves. So let, uh, for, for flyby, so let's say that, you know, an operator or an inspector just launches a drone in the air, air for the next hour the drone flies along the power line because it recognizes the power line using an, uh, a computer vision model sitting on top of its GPU or processing unit, and then flies along the line, scans the line, flies along the pole because it can detect the pole. So that's the first generation. The next one is also applying heavier models on top of it, which in, in this case are our models, is to also detect any kind of problems on these electrical components. So let's say uh, you know, now the drone is flying along along the line, detecting towers and poles, and then also, you know, circling around those poles to see, okay, this insulator or this electrical component is damaged. So it's recognizing that as well. So now we give it some more, you know, processing capabilities so that it can, you know, take some actions once it's detected. So once it's, it's detected, uh, you know, an insulator that is damaged or a conductor that's damaged, it can circle around it, collect, you know, images or data around it, and then come back to the drone station, uh, base station. So that's the next generation that we are aiming for, but it's still a work in progress. And so that is a buzz solutions extension market for you guys is direct drone integration and management. That's, that is definitely a use case uh, we are exploring and we have gotten requests for that from, uh, from a lot of other organizations or companies as well. Uh, which will be which will be great to deploy such kind of technologies, but yeah, that will be uh, as as you know a product line. We would love to deploy this in the field on operational vehicles once we get a little more you know leniency on the FAA regulations for autonomy and also more uh, compute on 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 the drones as well. Hey, um, this is um uh, you know all the images from you know your site and from these things are they're all quadcopters or helicopters or all rotorcraft uh, drones. But question for you guys, I'm thinking about high resolution imagery on larger fixed wing drones being able to cover, you know, 20 kilometers there, 20 kilometers back from two different angles on a flyby kind of thing. Uh, are you exploring that use case, or is that you know currently still science fiction 
from the FAA regulations perspective? Yeah, so currently a lot of our data we're getting from, as you said, uh, the, the quadcopters, the octocopters, and then helicopters, but we have gotten some data from a few of our drone partners that are flying or utility partners that are, you know, looking into these aerial vehicles that are, uh, you know, VTOL, uh, so vertical axis takeoff. So they're, they're flying those as well and testing out those. So we've gotten some data, but that's definitely a lot of, you know, utilities are also looking into that, especially for longer range flights and having much more, uh, you know, high resolution cameras on them so that they can still fly at the same speed, capture much, you know, much more images at a higher resolution when they're flying uh, instead of, you know, uh, distortions or blurriness when they're flying. So definitely it's a good use case for flybys for longer range inspections. We'll still need, you know, drones for in-depth inspections, which is, you know, let's, if they figure out a hotspot area, they'll still need drones to go in and, you know, collect images from different angles on a tower at different components. But definitely a lot of utilities and, and uh, you know, third-party inspection companies are, are looking at these aerial vehicles. So, yeah, I mean, it, it just strikes me that there's some really interesting stuff going on there. So, yeah, there's a, a lot of stuff and you, you personally are going to end, end up getting to play with flying drones again, which is, you know, probably something you enjoy <laughs> as a thought from a professional perspective. I do have a drone um, with me. <laughs> well, I saw one of the images and there was this big drone sitting beside you on your desk. And I was thinking, this is a man who's attached to large buzz saws <laughs> in the sky. Let's pivot back to the question of what problems you're solving. Now, the regulators are mandating more frequent imaging of more of the transmission networks. Uh, How much of that is being driven by, you know, there are two two major things which I see as problematic there. Well, there's kind of three drivers I see. There's the expectation of increased reliability of the grid. The United States has terrible grid reliability and, you know, compared to places that aren't India. Um, Europe's grid reliability, Germany's grid reliability is 13 minutes of outage per person per year. I think it is. You know, United States is two to two or four hours. I forget which. But so that's one thing. The second thing though, the second two things, stuff's changing, right? We have, there was a, a terrorist, what was perceived at the time to be a a dry run for a terrorist grid action in the Southwest United States, where people with high powered rifles were picking off insulators on transmission lines in remote areas, you know, and they you know, perceived that if they picked the right strategic things, they could cripple big chunks of the grid. So that's one aspect which would require more frequent uh, analysis. The second one, of course, is I, I believe I've heard that the climate is changing. And so, you know, when you talk to your clients, what are the primary things that are driving these increased expectations of timing and uh, degree of, of granularity of inspection? Yeah, I would, I would say there's there's two big things that we're seeing and that we have seen since the start, since our start in the market in 2017. The first being that infrastructure is aging. And the grid components are many of them are, are past their their point of when they were expected to be replaced. And so what we're seeing is these, the average age of components is oftentimes over 40 years old for components such as insulators or, you know, many components like that. And, and that poses substantial challenges because for a lot of these, these pieces of equipment or these components, there hasn't been great asset tracking since the time that these assets were installed, you know, decades ago. And so a big part of what utilities are working on now is identifying what assets are currently deployed on each of their 
on each of their structures on each of their towers and they're they're trying to figure out okay what what assets are deployed what is the rate of failure of these of these assets and when maybe when will we need to replace each component and so what we're seeing is as these components are continuing to age they're degrading at even faster rates and when you compound that with as many renewables that are coming on the grid now as there are, and also with climate uh, climate impacts and climate implications, uh, these components are going through even higher stressors, and that's also you know causing even greater strain on the grid. So that's that's really the first thing, and we're seeing that a big portion or a big piece of what we're doing is not only identifying the highest highest risk areas, the hotspot areas, or the areas that are already experiencing failures or faults. But, you know, we're also looking at asset tracking and asset tracking is a key piece that that utilities are concerned with as they're looking to replace their their different pieces of equipment. I would say that's that's the first thing. And then the second thing is we're seeing that as renewables are coming onto the grid at increasing rates, grid modernization is and the grid as a whole is the is the core infrastructure and the key backbone that we're going to need to help uphold a lot of this electrification that's happening. And so electrification and really as more renewables are coming on the grid. And so we're seeing that that creates an even bigger stress and need to modernize so many so many portions of the grid and the the challenges what we see is you know now it's become such a such a hot topic and it's become such a big conversation is how are we going to you know modernize the grid bring it up into the century digitize a lot of what's been uh, such a manual process for so long how are we going to replace components to really keep them up to to the standard that they need to be today i mean that's a really big part of the the conversation but you don't hear about the grid until there's significant issues that happen such as what we've seen with the major wildfires that have been sparked over the past several years which have been uh, several of which have been from failed Builds grid infrastructure, and then you also have the issues with rolling blackouts, as we're seeing in Texas, and you also have rolling blackouts or outages that are forced shutdowns that are happening in California, and then you see the outages that have happened on the East Coast and storm damage that's that's happened on the East Coast. So really, it's a countrywide issue that we're seeing, if not an international issue that we're seeing, which has really brought the grid into this to the spotlight in the past few years but you know these underlying issues have be, have been there for much longer and now it's just coming to be a really big conversation that we're facing today in America and beyond Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk join us next time to get your electric fix If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. (laughs) 